Hello, Annabelle. Uh, I guess you're wondering why I'm sitting at a piano. Oh, I'm not wondering. <laughs> as soon as I got your text, come to the room with a, with a piano with it. <laughs> now, um, I went to see a musical recently and there was a song that came up in it that... Um, it, you I are just... so happy right now, right now, aren't you, that there's no way that you could actually <laughs> physically be happier. Uh, look, I couldn't help but think of you and I when this song came up in this particular musical. I was just wondering or if you'd mind... you and me, even. <laughs> I was just wondering. <laughs> oh, should we just end this right now? Well, why can only one of us be happy? I'm happiest when correcting your grammar. You're happiest when persecuting me with live performance. Um, look, there's a couple of bits I've, you might notice on the music I've highlighted, which is bits that you'd be able to pick up. Would you mind, would you mind chiming in when required? Sure. <laughs> I can't laugh, I don't want to spoil it. All right. I've always had the hope that on the day my last breath fails me, Heavenly Father will shake my hand and say, You've done an awesome job, Salesy. Now it's our time to go out and set the world's people free. And we can do it together, you and me, but mostly me. You're a monster. <laughs> gonna change the world forever cause I can do most anything and I can stand next to you and watch every hero needs a sidekick every captain needs a mate aye aye every dinner needs a side dish on a slightly smaller plate <laughs> and now we're seeing eye to eye it's so great we can agree that Heavenly Father has chosen you and me, but mostly me. I'm not going to make you suffer through another verse. <laughs> <laughs> um, now, I think I should also point out here that even though I do occasionally bust out a show tune, I just want to make it clear that part of the humour of that is the fact that I'm really bad and mediocre at show tunes and playing the piano, but I just really like it. So that's part of the gag. I don't want people to think that I actually, like, Think that I'm good at and, and should be on stage. And now you're least planning <laughs> the uh, the feature. It's all right. I just like My people to understand part of the gag. Um, now that song is from Book of Mormon. This is which... where we now edge away from the piano, but tied to each other by our <laughs> microphones, like the awkward beast that we are. Um, I went to the Book of Mormon opening night. Okay, that's in... supposed to be such a great musical, and I am a bit shirty, but I didn't see it. I think you would have really enjoyed it. Um, I could just imagine you sitting there. Were you by yourself? <laughs> no, I took a friend. Oh, you took a friend. And just pleasurably thinking about how you would adapt that song. <laughs> Were your little fingers tapping on your knees? I was just, look, I was laughing so hard. Some of the songs, I mean, look, I went there thinking, how could this possibly be as funny as everyone has claimed it is? Because right. it's been around now for, yeah, yeah. what, 10 years maybe? Yeah. And every person I know who's seen it has said, look, I just laughed myself sick. And um, I thought, well, surely it can't be that funny. It's written by the guys who wrote South Park. And right. I find South Park quite funny, but I'm not like a diehard fan. Anyway, bizarrely enough, so the premise of it is, it's about, you know how Mormons, when they turn 18, they have a year out in the world doing their missionary work. Right, yeah. The premise is these two Mormons who go off to Africa. And 
it's actually a really great premise for a musical, firstly. It's, it just really worked. Um, and so the sort of, I mean, it's just wildly offensive on every level you could possibly imagine racist, um, just bigoted, you know, prejudiced, everything you can imagine. Um, Although everybody's okay about being mean to Mormons. It's <laughs> one of those religions so. that doesn't really warrant much of a... And like think, when Mitt Romney was running for president and everyone was just like, what about the underwear? And I think the Mormons have been pretty... Uh, good-natured about it sure. as well. Um, Apart about from the kind musical. of expelling <laughs> extreme prejudice people from their own bit. Anyway, um, anyway I guess the they get songs, the compensatory extra, extra spouses as well. Which is... <laughs> the songs were so funny. That was one of the funniest ones. Um, there was another one where it's all of the sort of young Mormons talking about you know how reality sometimes it doesn't mesh so well with religion. You know, mm. you get confronted by truths of life that don't match so much what you've been told in the church. And there's a song called Switch It Off Like a Light Bulb, which is where each of them give a little biographical take on a moment in their life where they sort of, you know, doubted things. And, and then it sort of switches to the chorus, which is just switch it off like a light bulb. Anyway, it was just absolutely hilarious. I highly recommend it if you're in Melbourne. I really enjoyed it. I would see it again. And, it, and I felt like I wanted to buy the soundtrack. Oh, you're going to see it again. I think I'm sense that you're going to. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, it was, um, it was a really, really good night out. You know, sometimes you go and see things and you think, um, like I remember when I saw, um, uh, what was the Star Wars that we really liked, the new reboot? Episode 7, it would have been. I can never remember the name of any Star Wars film apart from Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> Which is an awesome name for a film, yeah. don't you think? I know. That's why I recall it. Um, the other six I don't retain, <laughs> including the one I saw quite recently. Um, I forget what it was called, but um, Brenda will find it out. Um, <laughs> the one with Carrie Fisher and Harrison Ford with yeah, the old yeah. cameos. I remember leaving that and thinking that was $20 really, really well spent. Like I yeah. definitely got $20 worth of yeah. entertainment and value out of that. And that's the feeling that Book of Mormon leaves you with. Like, yes, that was well worth my effort to yeah. take a flight down to Melbourne to see that. So you have also been seeing some live stuff. Oh, I just got back from a week at the Adelaide Festival, I took a week off and went down there. I did a couple of things there um, just on stage conversations with a bunch of authors and artists. And in the meantime, I just filled my boots with every um, performance that I could go and see. It was so good. Like sometimes I go to those events, but I'm kind of in and out because I'm racing to get back to the kids and stuff. But I took the family with me. So um, everybody saw lots of stuff and had a really good time. And it was a really, really good festival, I've got to say. Like I always think that a festival's good if you see maybe one or two things that you would rate as absolutely brilliant. But I reckon I probably saw four or five things wow, that were that excellent. great. So um, I saw um, Barry Kosky's um, opera Saul, which is just absolutely brilliant. It's the um, tale of a king going mad, basically, and full of suspicion and contempt for those around him, including the family. And, and it's just this sort of descent into madness. But it's staged in such a um, uh, such a contemporary and, like, at some points, fairly controversial sort of way. It was just absolutely endlessly engaging. I'm not, um, uh, you know, a big opera aficionado, but it was um, just absolutely superb. But the thing that probably struck me most that I saw at the festival was a piece called Betroffenheit. It was only on for a couple of days. Um, and it's a, kind of, it's a dance piece, really, although it, it, it's spoken as well. And it is it has the most ghastly premise, right? It's, it's the true story of um, 
a, uh, a Canadian actor who is in the show um, and it's his recovery and dealing with this uh, terrible incident that happened to him. He and his wife were, uh, went camping at this um, sort of family um, uh, spot and um, their daughter and her two cousins um, begged to be allowed to sleep out in this cabin and they were a bit like, no, 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 you can't do that. Like, oh, okay. And so the kids all slept in this cabin and it burnt to the ground and they all died. And they were right there. It was just they couldn't rescue them. It, mm. It's just the sort of story that makes you lie awake at night um, thinking about what that would be like. And he has worked with this choreographer to present this performance that is him reliving it partially but also trying to struggle with um, coming to terms with it and living his life. It's just... Um, was he a, a dancer or a writer or what was his... Yeah, well, he... Yeah, yeah. So right. um, he was performing. Um, and no, no, I mean... So, he's an actor. Like, so oh, he's an actor. Okay, few, right. um, uh, a couple of TV shows. Right, but okay. he, his, he and his wife ran this um, uh, uh, performing arts company. Oh, so, I see. Okay. Yeah, and so he's worked with this quite extraordinary choreographer and there's a troupe of just incredible dancers that um, uh, that portray his suffering, his um, substance, substance addiction subsequent, and his um, breaking sort of through into life. I'm finding it really hard to describe it because it is hard to describe, and that's part of the genius of this show is mm. that you actually look at a piece of dance theatre and think that is what feeling like that would look like, you know, when expressed in movement. It's just, I've always been a um, bit of a fan of dance and this was just one of the most powerful things I've ever seen, I reckon. What was the feeling when you left, like what was your emotional state? It's, I actually had been unwilling to go and see it just because of the subject yeah, matter and pretty... I thought I just, I might find it so upsetting that I just couldn't cope with it. But it wasn't like that, um, and I think I wouldn't say I felt um, uh, completely um, destroyed in the sense that I was totally bleak after watching it. I, I think I just felt very exhausted, like I'd worked through all of these emotions right. with him. It was just, yeah, it was extraordinary. Anyway, the Troffenheit, it's called. And Which is, is it um, going to be anywhere else in Australia or was it just for the... It, it had been in Perth and I think it's it's now back on tour internationally. And did you um, say he having... performs himself in it? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Imagine how draining that must be. Yeah. God. It's, yeah, it's incredible. Wow. Mm. Um, and what other stuff did you see? Oh, uh, I saw um, Secret River. Oh, yeah. In a quarry, which was quite mm. extraordinary. Um, so this is Kate Grenville's book that was um, made by, um, uh, it was adapted by um, Andrew Bovell into a um, play and it, it was directed by Neil Armfield, who is one of the festival directors of the Adelaide Festival and they put the performance on In a Quarry, which was just, yeah, um, very. it's a very intense play 
um, about a family of um, a convict family freed and who go and take out a stake on the Hawkesbury and realise gradually that it is actually a piece of land that is already occupied by um, an Indigenous family. And it is the tale of these two groups not being able to communicate in any um, conventional way, each with almost comedically um, uh, reflected misunderstandings about each other's purpose and likely intention vis-a-vis -vis this piece wow. of land. And it ends in just um, the most brutal um, slaughter. And it was written because Kate Grenville um, did some research into her own family and found that one of her ancestors had been involved in a significant massacre. And she really struggled to incorporate that into her understanding of who she was and who her family were. And in typical Kate Grenville fashion, she then researched and researched and researched and then wrote this book about her reconstruction of what might have happened around that. Oh, um, I love that book. I thought it was great. Yeah, it, it is an extraordinary book. And look, seeing it as a play does give you this really um, intimate sense of what those interactions must have looked and felt like. Now, one of the natural um, impediments in the form is that the um, settlers are speaking English and the Indigenous um, actors are speaking an Indigenous tongue. So... Um, if Do they you have are, subtitles or anything? No. Right. So, and you can see, you can judge what conversations there are, you know, and you can see exactly the gist of what's being said. But it means that, you know, that the characters that you understand more deeply and um, whose characters change over the course of the play are the white characters because, you know, they... Um, you know, there's, there's an escalating tension between the husband and the wife because they both start off being um, very sympathetic to the Indigenous family's claim um, and then the, the husband ends up turning right round. But, like, the, all the Indigenous characters kind of stay the same the whole way, really. You don't get the same insight. So I would love to see a play written... Yeah, I was just thinking from that the from other the other perspective yeah, as well. Like but a anyway, companion piece to it, it would be awesome. It would be really awesome. Mm. Um, anyway, so it is um, it, it, it is an incredible play to see. And So when you're going to a festival, mm. how do you decide? Because, you know, if you see a writer's festival or something, there's a just vast array of things to go to. Yeah. Do you... Um, sort of methodically go through the program and select, oh, and I want to go to this, but it's on at the same time as that? Or are you a lucky dipper that you just go and you go, all right, what's, what can I get tickets to? Um, well, I outsource quite a bit of this. Like, Jeremy is a bit of a keen theatre fan, and so he usually does the first pass of the program, and um, and we have, like, quite similar tastes. So I always um, – he's just a more organised person, so he does the let's see this, this, and this, and I'm like, God, God, what day is it? Okay, great. Um, and, yeah, I think the great thing about this particular excursion was that we just had time to see a bunch of things. Yeah. Because I took the week off work. I wasn't, um, you know, worrying about that. So it was really – it was pretty amazing. I um, When we lived in the US, I went to the New Yorker Festival a few oh, yeah. times, which was great. And, clang. Um, clang. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll give you a clang on that one. And sometimes I picked things I wanted to go to and locked them in, mm. and sometimes I would just, um, you know, 
go to whatever was left over. And I've done that same thing at Sydney yeah. Arts Festival. And the beauty of that is, I mean, you do stumble across things that you never yeah. in a million years would choose to go to yourself and they turn out to be brilliant. Same with 20 years ago, I used to be the arts reporter for ABC News. And so I, I would go to pretty much everything so I had a good sense of what was on. And um, again, it was just such an education and it also helps you understand what you like yeah. and what your taste actually is. Um, but yeah, dance was one of those things that if you'd said to me, do you prefer ballet or modern dance? Before I was the arts reporter, I would have said, oh, probably ballet, but because I like classical music. But actually, I really massively preferred modern dance. Yeah, me too. I'm a, I'm a big modern dance fan. Um, Once you I, see some good modern dance, it's like, wow. I saw, um, and this was because I was interviewing this particular artist on stage, um, I saw a film called Coral, Rekindling Venus, by a multimedia artist called Lynette Walworth. And she is an incredibly accomplished artist, but one of these Australian artists that's probably much better known internationally than she is in Australia. Right. Anyway. And again, on paper, something in a million years I would not select to go to. Right, a yeah. film about Coral. Right. Anyway, she, she made this film um, and... It is projected on the interior surface of planetariums. That's mm -hmm. where it gets screened. And so Adelaide has a planetarium. I did not know this, mm. even though I grew up in South Australia. And so this film is about an hour long, and it's this incredibly high-definition footage of corals, like living corals. And you see such extraordinary detail and there's no sense of perspective or uh, or scale so you're looking at something you're like is this something is this something huge and then you realize it's something tiny and then you're looking at something else and you realize it's like the skin of a whale shark or something you know it's like and it's so mesmerizing and the music that goes with this film it has no narrative at all and so it's not a pushy film but by the end of it you you really do have this extraordinary wonder and about this sort of magnificence of coral. Wow, so is this I your know. way of telling me now that you're really into coral? Now I'm going to be into coral. <laughs> I know. And I talked to her, she's a very, very cool woman, um, and on stage we had her with um, Margaret Wertheim, who is an Australian science writer. She's a physicist by training. She is just consternatingly brilliant. She wrote a book in the 90s called Pythagoras's Trousers, which is about oh, gender yeah, and yeah. Um, maths and science. And it's all about how Pythagoras decreed that numbers were masculine and that corporeal issues um, and of the body were, were feminine, um, whereas pure maths is, of course, a, a bloke's um, pursuit. And that kind of continues to spill down the generations in um, science and math and ma mathematics. But this woman has totally bucked the trend, I've got to say. <laughs> she is a really engaging science writer. But, and she's got a twin sister as well. And in her spare time, she crochets coral reefs. <laughs> now, she discovered this because there is a, um, a sort of... Here we've twangingly reached the end of my expertise. So all I can just say is that there's some sort of oh, numerical boring. equation which is very, very hard to um, reproduce or to, to physically represent. And she said, look, all of these blokes have been puzzling for decades about how to, like, represent this particular mathematical equation. And she's pointed out that coral actually represents this concept really perfectly and so in order to um, demonstrate this she she crocheted a piece of coral and then her sister joined in and it is now the i think it's one of the biggest 
community art project in the world because they've knitted this whole reef and they take it on tour and exhibit it and people knit um, local um, extensions to it. So there's, <laughs> I know, right? But it's so fascinating. Anyway, so she's a <laughs> physicist with a twin sister who's knitting a coral reef. Why there isn't a Peter, Peter Greenaway film about this woman <laughs> already, I do not know. But Pythagoras Trousers is, is um, really worth a read. And Margaret Wertheim has written a lot of other stuff. She's a great science columnist as well. So just look out for her. She's, um, she's brilliant. It's funny talking about numbers being masculine because I was thinking about them as you said that, thinking what numbers visually look like, thinking they do sort of have their own, you could ascribe to numbers a personality. <laughs> no, like one would be stern and humorless. Yeah. You know, one look, eight looks jolly and fun. Yes. <laughs> and I remember when I was a child, I used to have favourites. Twelve's always <gasps> been a favourite. Twelve was my favourite. Twelve's an awesome number. I really you? always look forward six to being two, twelve. Four, twelve by one, it's great. No, see, but I just thought it had a really great sound. I like the sound it does of as twelve. Well. Yeah, twelve's good. 12, 24, 48, all good numbers. Yeah. Divisible by two. I've always preferred the divisible oh by two God. numbers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, I was reminded when you were – oh, firstly, sorry, before we go on, you've acquired a tattoo since last week. I have acquired a tattoo. <laughs> I um, So um, we did a lot of fringe shows with the kids and, like, Adelaide – look, I'm biased about Adelaide, of course, but Adelaide in March is just such a spectacular place to be. There are a couple of um, areas in Adelaide that are very cool to hang out in um, with the Fringe. There's one called the Royal Croquet Club, which is sort of on the banks of the Torrens. And it's just this giant complex full of tents and theatres and really delicious food and great kids shows during the sort of late afternoon and then grown up ones later on. And um, there's another area called the Garden of Unearthly Delights. It's from Adelaide. <laughs> and in the Garden of Unearthly Delights, along with everything else. Um, and from the James, isn't that from Kubla Khan or something? From uh, it sounds or? a bit Khanish, doesn't it? Yeah. Anyway, uh, yeah. Don't know. Yeah. Someone will let us know. <laughs> <laughs> you don't, <laughs> obviously. <laughs> Um, yeah. It's Coleridge. Um, anyway, uh, oh, yeah. there was yeah. a, a, a place doing henna tattoos and my daughter got very excited about having a tattoo on her hand. So I got a leaf done on my it's hand. Nice. My slight difficulty is I'm interviewing the Prime Minister tomorrow. Oh, fabulous. And of course, I'll be just like, <laughs> oh, hi, yeah, this is my henna tattoo, dude. At least you can get a neck tattoo. That could have been worse. Yeah, or, or like, uh, did you ever see that guy in the 2012? Um, presidential campaign who got um, a Mitt Romney tattoo on his face. Oh. Every now and again I just Google that guy to see how he's going oh. because he became this independent political analyst. Like He got you know that sort of double R, <laughs> R Romney Republican kind of logo oh. He got in red, white and blue. He got that tattooed oh. hugely on his face. That's how committed he was to a Romney win. And see, I could have told him, mate, just get a just get a, a temporary one, dude. Just, this just may not last. Have you thought about having it in the place of a tramp stamp? You know, oh, those no, yeah, they, a bit more just, discreet. Yeah. At least you can, you know, oh, wear a me. pair of shorts and hide it. Anyway, he, uh, I, I literally do every now and again just Google him and see how he's doing, <sighs> and he's had it removed, unsurprisingly, but <laughs> at great expense. Oh, geez, he just looked shocking. like such a number as well. I just thought, oh. The um, other thing you said before that made me think, oh, yes, we can't let the episode escape without referring to that, was you were you're growing up in South Australia, or your episode of um, Julie's Marathon oh, yeah. Delivery. 
Sorry. Oh, God, I loved it. That place, firstly, the place where your parents live was just, I mean, I know you said it was, they were particularly lucky because they caught it after a bit of rain. And yeah, so it looked nice. Green. It was a dust bowl for most of my childhood. <laughs> um, but also, oh, my God, your mother, she's amazing. She the is the preserves, amazing. and I just think in another life she could have clearly been a Chief Justice of the High Court because her competence, <laughs> she just exuded competence in every possible way. Yeah, she's a great person. I um, Although, how about she just, she really chipped me for not being good enough at craft. Oh, that, was, we were... that was a good burn, Christabel. <laughs> I know. <laughs> she's so lovely, but ow, ow. Oh, no, sorry, that wasn't the burn I thought of. The burn I was thinking was when she said, um, <laughs> Julia said something like, so is it a bit of a surprise that she's got her own cooking show or something like that? And your mother went, well, yeah, it was actually. Like, as if she didn't think you no, cooking and then was And then she said, yes, well, that's quite a recently occurring thing. I'm like, horseshit. I'm constant. I was always cooking when I was going, what are you, you talking about cooking, you monster? God, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. The funny thing is I, so I, got, I got a message from Christopher Pine afterwards saying, Oh, you looked very nervous standing next to your mother as she was interviewed. I'm like, and oh. why wouldn't you be? Who wouldn't be nervous standing next to your mother? I'm like, well, hey, Christopher Pye, I'll come and interview your mother and have you stand by because his mother is terrifying. Well, thank God when I did that show, my parents did not live at the house any longer, so there was no prospect of bumping into them. In fact, I think I, I bumped into the producer of that um, yeah. show and he said to me, you were the only person in the history of the show whose family still lived in the childhood home. Isn't that, yeah, Julia said that to me um, when we were filming it and I thought, God, I found that whole experience really emotional and not because there was anything particularly hard asked in a sort of, you know, um, you know, lifelong death no. and secret sort of way. But it's just, it's really unusual to go back to your childhood home and talk about your childhood for hours and hours on end because then they edit it all down. And we went to about six or seven different places. And it actually is like, you've, at the end of it, you feel this bubble of emotion just sort of yeah, welling up, just non-specific. Yeah. And I did feel it made me realise a bunch of things, like, for example how lucky I am to to still have that place where I grew up that's a very special place to me, to be able to visit it and have my mm. parents still alive and still there. It's quite extraordinary and not that usual, I mm. think. And I think it was when we just were going through my brother's old room and there's the um, door frame there with all of our, like how high we were, little pencil marks and mm. how tall we were. I know, that was pretty amazing. And also there was something about it that, because uh, it's quite different to my upbringing, even though I think we have some a lot of similarities in sort of things we were doing as kids with what we were reading and whatnot. Yeah, but, um, probably a bit less Highland dark <laughs> in mine, possibly, I think I'd be able to say. And confidence. me a little bit less being shot in the face by my siblings. <laughs> shot <Yeah. laughs> <Agreed>. um, <laughs> um, But uh, it, there was something about it that just seemed like a uniquely Australian childhood that made me wonder, do many people get that childhood anymore? I think if they live in the country, they still do. I Probably. Don't know. Uh, uh, would country people still be as... Because, you know, for city people, I think as, as a kid... Fair. Well, yeah, that's what I was going to yeah. say. Like, city people used to be, or suburban people, when I was a child, you had a lot of freedom, which yeah. I don't think kids in suburbia have yeah. today. Yeah. So I'd wondered, is it the same in the country or not? I'm not sure. Um, perhaps I'll go and raise my children in the country for a bit and then I'll report back <laughs> to <me> you. <laughs> now, um, listen, we're out of time, so uh, I'm going um, to wrap us there, which is just as well because our 
phone battery's about to go fat. If you like the podcast, visit our website. This w- is the w- vision. Oh, sorry. Oh, God, it's I've totally messed up your <laughs> reference to our. Like, you go. www.chat10looks3.com. And you can leave or a find review. Find us on iTunes. And, and leave a review. Re- yep, because people really like that. Follow us on Twitter at chat10looks3. And also, Brenda has a Twitter as well. Yeah, she's Brenda. At Brenda. Just Google Twitter, Brenda, Chat 10 Looks yeah. Day, and you'll find it, and yeah. we'll get the correct one for next time, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening. Don't see you again, will you? <laughs>